Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. Um, God, um, just with those words of the song, God, trusting and obeying. Um, we trust, God, that you'll use this time. Um, and I trust that you'll use me, God, um, to teach what you have for us in your word, God. And I just ask you um, to reach each one of uh, the individuals here and listening online, God, um, just with what they need to hear from this passage, God. Uh, I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So throughout my life, um, I've always been fascinated with the law and the legal system. As a child, I dreamt of becoming a police officer. And it wasn't uncommon for me and my friends to play uh, cops and robbers as a game. When we did play this game, I always wanted to be a part of the cops' side. Chasing and pursuing the make-believe bad guys and putting them behind make-believe bars for the imagined crimes. For a time, I was fascinated with the police and their canine units. These specialized officers used trained dogs to sniff out anything from drugs to bombs in highly populated areas or to chase and take down dangerous criminals. Throughout my education, both in high school and throughout university, I wanted to be a part of this justice system in our society and help to serve out justice in some capacity. The interest for me is so deep that even in my free time, my favorite type of shows to watch are those of the legal and true crime genre. One of my particular favorites is called Line of Duty. Line of Duty revolves around a fictional anti-corruption unit, AC-12, and, they invest, and their investigations which they undertake. Throughout the seasons, AC-12 goes about uncovering and serving justice to those within the police force who have failed in their duties and are corrupt. To investigate corruption in the force occurring at the highest levels. As one of the characters often says throughout the TV show, they're, they're, they are interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's catching bent coppers. For the characters in the show, there's nothing worse than a police officer tasked with serving out justice and protecting their community, but instead using their position and power for the opposite and for their own benefit. I think that can be said for a large majority of us as well. It sickens us to hear about police officers who have failed in their duties or willingly used their positions for personal gain. This doesn't just apply to police, but to anyone in the justice system. Corrupt lawyers, judges, scientists, and experts, among others. We get angry when anyone bends justice to serve their own purposes. After all, if they do so, can it really be called justice? It isn't fair for an innocent person to be put in jail for a crime they did not commit. It isn't fair in our minds for a person who committed a heinous crime to escape punishment because they were friends with the chief of police or the judge that was assigned to their case and that their crimes weren't paid for. When we are asked to describe God, oftentimes we begin, we, uh, being just is a character trait which is mentioned. However, for many non-Christians, and even some 
who call themselves Christians, they have a hard time believing this wholeheartedly. Believing that if God exists, that he is just. Though I would assume many of you here would agree with the sentiment that God is just, when those in the other camp bring up verses from Deuteronomy that we've just heard, we kind of cringe. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 to 18 said, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. These verses are somewhat, uh, some of the most difficult of the Old Testament for Christians to reconcile with a God that we describe as loving, moral, merciful, and just. After all, it doesn't sound like we have, or it sounds like we have a decree from God to wipe out an entire civilization. Now, I want to start out by saying, like much of the topics we've been discussing throughout this series, and indeed this one, including many general concepts in the Bible, we're only going to scratch the surface. People devote their lives to studying questions like these and passages like these. With that said, I still feel it's incredibly important for us as Christians to wrestle with these issues and for them to be discussed in the church. After all, if we are to believe that all scripture is God-breathed and has a purpose, then there's a reason for it and the things we can learn and there are things we can learn from these verses. I think it's important for us to first look at the context of these verses. Your Bible may label Deuteronomy chapter 20 as laws concerning warfare or something similar. And this is exactly what this chapter outlines. It lays out what ought to happen in warfare. For some people, we're already in a territory where, uh, where this leaves a rather bitter taste. Because isn't one of the Ten Commandments, after all, thou shalt not kill? And how can war be justified or even happen without killing? Therefore, some will say, God is already breaking his own commandments and is not just. English can be a tricky and confusing language at times. And simply put, thou shalt not kill is a somewhat poor translation. Instead, thou shalt not murder would be, a closer, would be closer to the real idea of this commandment. Murder, of course, being the unjustified taking of life. These laws in chapter 20 were meant to put strict rules on warfare when it took place. In essence, to minimize casualties and people whom the Israelites were allowed to wage war on. Even going to war, uh, biblical principles and God's laws must be followed. It's not possible for a military person to separate their religious life from that of their military life. With this in mind, chapter 20 provides rules for how this harmony 
was to take place. Within these rules for war, we have verses 16 to 18, where God outlines conduct for warfare regarding the Canaanites. God's command here is put in fairly clear terms. Hard to swallow, but nonetheless clear. Chapter, or verse 17 said, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Complete destruction. One of the first questions we can ask ourselves when looking at these verses is, were the Canaanites really that bad? In a word, yep. The conduct of their people didn't fall very far from the gambit of all of their gods and goddesses. We're talking about things like adultery, bestiality, child sacrifice, among other immoral acts. To give you a glimpse of how bad, the archaeologist William Albright described the Canaanite goddess, Aneth, in the following way. The blood was so deep that she waded in it up to her knees, nay, up to her neck. Under her feet were human heads. Above her, human hands flew like locusts. In her sensuous delight, she decorated herself with suspended heads while she attached hands to her girdle. Her joy at the butchery is described in even more sadistic language. Her liver swelled with laughter, her heart full of joy. The liver of Aneth was full of exaltation. Afterwards, uh, Afterwards, Aneth was satisfied and washed her hands in human gore before proceeding to other occupations. This idolatry and practices of the Canaanites weren't merely an intellectual pursuit or an interest which they pursued in their own free time and in the privacy of their own home. It had major influences and implications on their their societies. For that reason, God didn't want his nation and his chosen people to be a part of it and potentially led astray. The Israelites were to be immoral and and theologically different from people around them. Within this idea, it's important to remember that God wasn't just picking on the Canaanites either. Throughout the Old Testament, God threatened nations with his divine judgment when they passed a certain moral line. Remember Jonah, who went to speak to the Ninevites? Or Amos is probably a good example, where God promised to punish nations that were around Israel even including Israel and Judah. Amos chapter 1 verses 3 says, Thus the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke punishment. Chapter 1 verses 6 said, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke punishment. Verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke punishment. Verse 11 says, thus the lo- says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke punishment. Verses 13 says, thus says the Lord, for uh, three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke punishment. Chapter 2, verses 1 says, 
Uh, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Verse 4 in chapter 2 says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. And finally, verse 6 in chapter 2 says, uh, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Even in the New Testament, Jesus himself proclaims a final judgment on the nation of Israel, who went on to fall to the Roman Empire in 70 AD. It's pretty clear that God will judge nations, including that of Israel, when they pass certain thresholds or lines. But this begs the question as to what determines that threshold. Who determines the point of no return? In the 60s, there was a study performed by a psychologist where a number of school children were presented with the story of the uh, destruction of Jericho. After being presented with this story, they were asked whether Joshua and the nation of Israel were right or wrong in this situation. Two-thirds of the children approved of Joshua's actions. However, when the story was changed to a different nation and a different leader, only 7% of the children approved, while three-quarters of them disapproved. And this is exactly what we hear from skeptics and critics. We correctly condemn the killing and ethnic cleansing of groups such as the Nazis, but for some reason, Israel gets a pass for doing basically the same thing to the Canaanites. What are the guiding principles that allow us to know when a moral point of no return has come? Doesn't something like that uh, determining if a nation is too immoral or morally corrupt to be redeemed fall out and above our mortal understanding? Yeah, it does. And any type of determination or judgment of this type should be left up to God. Oh, and be assured that Israel made that mistake as well. In 1 Samuel, you can read about Israel going into battle against the Philistines, even bringing the Ark of the Covenant with them, but without divine approval. And they lost. In order for Israel to be justified in their war, they would have to be acting on guidance from God, which was usually provided to them via special revelation a prophet. As illustrated in other passages in the Old Testament, without this direction, and when they decided to choose for themselves to go to war and who to wage war on, it did not go well. Another common objection to the command we read in Deuteronomy is that the Canaanites were just doing what they had been taught. After all, most, if not all, had grown up in that society where they were taught these beliefs by their parents, who were in turn taught those beliefs and practices from their parents, and so on and so forth. Shouldn't God have at least given them a chance to turn the ship around before he passed judgment on them, before he gave this commandment to the Israelites? There are a few important points to remember when addressing this idea. To begin with, God does, and has revealed himself to everyone. 
In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, we read, For what can be known about God uh, is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Secondly, it would seem logical, especially considering what we've read in Amos, that the Canaanites had been warned by God about their moral failings and shortcomings. We even read in Hebrews about the Canaanites being described as disobedient. Disobedience meaning that one has the moral awareness to know what is right and wrong, and yet disregarded the right for a pursuit of the wrong. And third, we need to remember that any sin, even so-called small sins, are against a perfect and uh, immutable God. They warrant the penalty of death. That third point can be difficult for us to understand. A so-called small sin deserving such a strong punishment? Well, that's because God is so good and perfect. Remember when I told you that I have an interest in the law and in our justice system? Well, with this comes an interesting trivia night type knowledge. Now, I'm sure... Most, if not all of us, have played a practical joke on someone or had somebody play a practical joke on us. You can go onto YouTube and search for practical jokes and see videos of people hiding in garbage cans, popping out and scaring their friends and family, or even dressing up as something scary and popping out of a closet. Sometimes the reactions are quite funny and comical. No one really gets in big trouble for these kind of pranks and practical jokes, but they're funny for us to watch. But what if I were to tell you that there's actually an offense in our Canadian criminal code that makes it a crime to alarm the queen? It's crazy, but it's true. Under the Offenses Against Public Order, Prohibited Acts, Section 49, in the Canadian Criminal Code, it says, Everyone who willfully, in the presence of Her Majesty, A, doesn't act with the intent to alarm Her Majesty or to break the public peace, or B, does an act that is intended or is likely to cause bodily harm to Her Majesty is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 14 years. So, you see, while it may be funny to dress up as a scary clown and run after your terrified best friend, doing similarly with the Queen would make you a criminal and possibly get you put in jail for 14 years. That's because the queen is somewhat more special than your best friend, in a manner of speaking. I've also heard it described this way. Sometimes, as a husband, I can say or do some pretty stupid things. When I do say or do any of these stupid things, sometimes my wife will remind me of my mistake with a swift swat at my shoulder. No harm, no foul, just a reminder. However, if we ever found ourselves in the presence of the queen and we did the same, no matter how unassuming we meant it to be, something tells me that it wouldn't be looked upon very well. Again, this is because on the scale of things, 
I'm not as an important figure as the queen. Likewise, while we may think something is a small sin, even a so-called small sin against an infinitely good and just God isn't that small. And as we know, God can't let sin into his presence because of the greatness of his good. The final point I'd like to explore with regard to these verses and their implications on God's justice is the question of efficiency. See, there are many that will point out that the command we read here in chapter 20 and then point out to the fact that Israel and God failed miserably in carrying these actions out. After all, Israel kept falling into pagan idolatry throughout the Old Testament. Why didn't God mete out his divine judgment with a little more efficiency and effectively? And if this judgment was so ineffectively applied, how just and powerful could God really be anyways? As if it's immoral or ungodlike to be less than efficient. To this person, I would ask, what reasons do you have that draws you to the conclusion that God is required and must operate with the maximum efficiency? Just because you say so and think it's better? We should know better than to ask these questions. Such questions take for granted knowing God's divine plan and purpose in great detail. However, when we do ask them, we're in good company. Habakkuk asked us a very similar question, even with regard to justice. He asked, why, God, aren't you fixing all the bad things and injustice around us? And God responded to him and said, you wouldn't believe what I'm doing if I told you. Throughout scripture, God didn't uh, didn't have a problem with using seemingly inefficient means uh, and taking plenty of time to accomplish his plans for his glory. Think about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was promised to have multitudes, uh, promised to have multitudes of descendants. And yet God chose Abraham and Sarah for this. Some might argue that starting with a super old and barren couple may not have been the most efficient way of achieving this plan of having a large, major- a large number of descendants. And yet, that's who God used. In my study, the quote, God is almost always late, came up. And it's quite true. Though the Bible tells us that God may not work at the most efficient manner, he is totally sufficient. Not always efficient, but sufficient. But then again, is the goal efficiency? Every once in a while, I'll take the time to cook a meal from scratch. One of Amanda's favorite things that I've made are onion rings. I take the time to cut the onions, I batter them, and then I fry them in small batches. And don't get me wrong, they're very good, but they take forever to make. It just isn't as efficient as going out to the grocery store 
and grabbing a bag of frozen onion rings to make. And buying frozen onion rings isn't as efficient as going to a fast food restaurant and buying them hot and ready to eat. But man, do my onion rings taste a lot better than frozen or fast food. Or how about those of you who have or tend vegetable gardens? It's much more efficient to go to the grocery store and buy the vegetables that you need for your meals. But it can be so satisfying to work in the garden, to put food on your table with the produce and the vegetables that you've grown yourself. It's far more work, but the results are more satisfying. You see, God works through the messiness of humanity. He uses human failures and choices and still accomplishes his work and his plan. God wants humans to see his grace, holiness, and love. To God, this is more of a priority than being efficient. We can take comfort in this, that we all have a part to play in God's redemptive plan. And while this plan may seem at times inefficient to us as humans, we can be assured that it is totally sufficient. In closing, I want to leave you with the words of Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Yet, if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. You see, God's law and justice forms three functions. The first is to be a mirror. This mirror reflects for us God's perfection and righteousness. And it also reflects our own shortcomings and sinfulness. Secondly, God's law functions to restrain evil. Although the law cannot change a person's heart, it can, to some extent, constrain the lawlessness by its threats of judgment. Third and finally, it proves as a function to guide the regeneration of people. It informs us as to what will please God. As Christians, we are free from the law as a system of salvation. But we are under the law of Christ. This law is fully just and should be our rule of life.